We said in creating this podcast, we wanted it to feel a bit like a lunchroom conversation. And in today's case, the first half of what you're about to hear will have that sense as one of us was on assignment in a major U.S. city. Given the prominence of the religious right, we often associate the entry of religious faith in the political fray as commonplace for conservatives. But in recent weeks, Democratic presidential candidates have spoken out quite clearly about moral values and matters of faith, including in their announcement speeches. In our current political moment, is there a broader lane for religion's applicability to contemporary American politics, including on the Democratic side of the aisle? Pete Buttigieg is, of course, one of the more vocal contenders to talk openly about his Episcopal faith. And a recent article from Emma Green of The Atlantic, one of today's guests, highlights that. It's also been intriguing to witness interactions in recent weeks about candidate religious faith in town halls and in the press for contenders like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and now Joe Biden. In today's conversation, you'll hear from an eight-year veteran of the Obama administration, Michael Ware, who led that administration's evangelical outreach and helped manage White House engagement on adoption and anti-human trafficking efforts throughout all eight years of the Obama administration. Michael has since founded Public Square Strategies, which helps for-profit and non-profit organizations navigate our rapidly changing religious and political landscape. In 2017, he published Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America. And he and his wife, Melissa, publish a weekly newsletter I think is extremely helpful. Joining Michael is Emma Green, who for the last seven years has been The Atlantic's staff writer focused on how religion overlaps with politics and culture. A graduate of Georgetown University where she studied government, Emma began a fellowship with The Atlantic after graduating, and she stayed put and been prolific. In 2017, she won first place for the Religion News Association's Excellence in Religion News Analysis, as well as second place in three other writing categories. Emma grew up in the South and is a self-described writer and troublemaker, a worthy calling for any aspiring journalist. Maybe think about this conversation with all its glorious sounds of city life in the background, particularly during the first half, as an informal lunch hour dialogue with an experienced presidential advisor and one of the best religion reporters in the country. They weigh in on how candidate faith language may play out among differing segments of the country, about the growing politicization of religion in America, and about ways that congregational life, even if it's waning in some communities, still brings together people of diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, about declining local journalism, and finally, about how Emma and Michael are each wrestling with growing tribalism in their country, specifically with the more than twofold spike since 1958 in the number of Americans who don't want their child to marry someone from the opposite political party. 63% of Republicans today and 60% of Democrats today say this. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the conversation. Kind of urban today. So maybe I'll recap what I was writing about and Michael can speak to some of the aspects of this that he helped me think through as I was writing. You know, there's been a ton of excitement on the religious left among people who call themselves the religious left about Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, who has become 
a surprise contender in the pack of 2020 Democratic hopefuls so far, if that is even meaningful at this stage in the race. And I think one of the reasons is that he has been bold and open in talking about his faith. He's Episcopalian. He is a longtime Christian and church attender. And people on the religious left have been very excited about what they see as an open embrace of religion by a Democrat and also a reclaiming of the mantle of religion when it has so long been claimed almost exclusively by the Republican Party. So this introduces a bunch of questions about how the 2020 Dems are going to make choices in their campaigns in the next coming months. I think that's, you know, exactly right. I think a a big, you know, we often have the God gap conversation and have over the last, you know, 30 years. Uh, What's different about this moment is that, you, you know, there's this undercurrent of incredulity about uh, about the fact that Republicans are dominating among significant swaths of religious America, considering they're led by a man like Donald Trump. And so instead of like, you know, in 2008, even when Barack Obama was making the case that you know, Democrats, too, have a seat at the table. He famously said at the 2004 Democratic Convention, you know, we, we worship an awesome God in the blue states, you know, just like in the red states. There, there's now this undercurrent of, wait a second, we don't just want a seat at the table. We are the moral candidates. <laughs> you know, we are the ones. Pete Buttigieg says this very sort of strikingly uh, sometimes, which is my preference in a more positive way and sometimes in a more negative way. But, you know, he'll say, when I look at scripture, I see care for the poor, care for the widow, care for those in prison, care for the immigrant. And that's what informs my politics. But then there's also this undercurrent of real religion and real, frankly, real religious people. And again, I'm speaking for the Democratic candidates, not, not my point of view, but there's this there's this real desire on the religious left to say uh, real religious people wouldn't support a man like Donald Trump and a party that supports the policies uh, that the Republican Party does. And that's going to be um, that, that's kind of a that's kind of a new thing to operate and play out on, on the uh, on the national level for Democrats. Emma, can I ask in your piece, I, I noted that you talked about, you know, the maybe 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 an oversight perhaps on the on the Clinton campaign this last time around and sort of not speaking into the religious voice that that existed in the country perhaps a bit better than than she did um, and you also draw out you know this idea that that if candidates do speak about faith it's an easy way to get uh, maybe a little bit more media attention uh, as if there's a bit of a gap you know for Democratic candidates just like there's we talk a lot about this project you know a bit of a, a journalism religion gap as well could could you draw that out a little bit more. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't describe it as an oversight because the Clinton campaign was massively staffed with people who are veterans of Democratic races and politics. And I don't think any of them were surprised by the religiosity of America or, or, you know, just forgot to check off their faith apparatus checkbox. I think it was a really strategic choice made by the Clinton campaign to not, first of all, focus on religious voters. We have anecdotes around the lack of engagement and the specific desire to avoid engagement with, for example, centrist white Catholics in Indiana 
or other populations that might be in that sort of persuadable category. And also, they made a decision not to foreground Clinton's faith. Clinton, we have a lot of evidence that Clinton has been a lifelong devout Methodist. She, it was said by her former staffer in the Clinton administration in the 90s, who was the communications director during the Lewinsky years. She was said to have had a Bible that she kept on her dining room table that she thumbed through in order to have reflections during that time that was very trying in her spiritual life. We have a ton of evidence that she really cares about Christianity, and yet that wasn't something that came through in the rhetoric of how she talked about her campaign or her policies. So I think what we're seeing now is a repudiation of that philosophy, which says that reaching out to religious voters of all kinds, including voters of color, Hispanics, African-Americans, which have been traditionally a really strong voter base, African-American community for Democrats. And I think there's a repudiation of the idea that you don't need to engage on a faith level. Yeah, I think that's part of what we're seeing. You know, in Emma's latest article on this, I was quoted as pointing out that to a certain extent, much of the faith outreach in this campaign so far has been from and by CNN, not by the candidates, <laughs> you know? And so most of the remarks that we've seen, and there are exceptions, but most of the remarks that we've seen have been in these town hall formats or on Morning Joe, where, you know, Joe Scarborough in particular is very interested in, in faith and religion. And so these are candidates who, and they deserve credit because we can never, you know, frankly, you can't take for granted that Democratic nominees or candidates will be able to respond, even respond to these kinds of questions. But a lot of the faith rhetoric so far has been in response to questions journalists have asked. The real test of whether this is uh, a strategic turn for some of these candidates is the extent to which faith outreach is integrated into their campaigns. And that looks like staff, that looks like proactive outreach. So are these candidates meeting with religious leaders? Are they giving speeches to religious audiences on issues that are important to them? Are they inviting religious voices to support different policy proposals they have? And are they doing so broadly? And are they doing so in a way that actually respects the religiosity of the people they're engaging with? Or do they just view sort of houses of worship as sort of voting depots as opposed to unique constituencies that need to be respected on their own terms. And that's what I'm looking to see. The Clinton campaign didn't bring on a faith staffer until the late summer of 2016. Uh, So no one uh, of 2016, if we see candidates bringing on faith staff by this summer, that'll be a real indication that there's there's a real inclusion of faith outreach in the strategic vision of these campaigns. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, you know, it's not just Buttigieg who's been talking about faith. Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris had a very interesting line in her announcement speech, although, you know, it's been interesting to see she, she has seemed to shy away from faith rhetoric since her announcement speech. Even she had the opportunity to speak at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is Dr. King's old church. And I was surprised by the really secular tone and nature of the and content of her speech, even at Ebenezer. Um, 
but Klobuchar, Joe Biden, if he gets in, will be able to do significant religious outreach. Julian Castro. And then, you know, I'd even point to Bernie Sanders. Remember, it was Bernie who went to Liberty University, which, by the way, I want to advise any 2020 candidates to do. But it was Bernie who went to Liberty University in 2016 and made a really earnest conviction-filled appeal to those very conservative, um, uh, generally conservative uh, evangelical students and community. Yeah, Emma, what do you think? I, I saw something that maybe you tweeted out a day or two ago about candidate giving and that being a little bit surprising uh, and so sort of window into their their actual spiritual conviction and practices and habits. Is that is that a factor? I mean, on the one hand, you can put up props or you can drop language into your rhetoric. On another hand, you reveal who you are as you increasingly come under the spotlight. How does that play? Yeah, you know, you're sounding like my editor because maybe I'm going to have to write about this. (laughs) Um, There were finally tax returns disclosed by the 2020 Dems, which were rounded up by the Washington Post. And I can't remember for each individual candidate how high the percentages were, but they were really low for basically everybody hovering around the one to three percentage for recent tax years. And to me, that's really striking for a few reasons. The first is that all of these candidates are people who have made a lot of money and are bringing in a lot of money. And to be someone who's that wealthy, who then gives that little to charity, no matter what your beliefs about the role of government in providing social welfare and social support, it really is just a statement to me of your values. And I think that's also an interesting way of resonating with religious voters who care a lot about this issue. I mean, I'll be frank and I'll say that I don't think there are probably that many people who would up or down give their vote or not give their vote because of how much money a candidate gives to charity. But I do think it's a signal of general alignment, especially Mm -hmm. among, for example, very religious Christians for whom tithing or giving away 10% of your income is a really important principle. Among some religious Jews, this is also really, really cherished and practiced. So I, I think there's just a lot that we can tell from a sort of signaling and values perspective when we look at those figures, even though they probably ultimately won't be a make or break of how religious people actually evaluate all the candidates. Yeah, I do think it goes to a question of authenticity. And I think that voters are looking for unique windows into the real convictions of candidates in an age when everything is so cultivated. And frankly, when a lot of these candidates don't have the kinds of extensive public records that would have been typical in in earlier eras of of politics for people running to be president that yeah when you get a window into something like their personal giving it does kind of go to who they are which is the same reason why you know candidates should speak about their faith to the extent that they have a faith or to the extent they have a view on the role of faith in public life, because these are the kinds of questions that allow voters to get a sense of who these candidates are. So I agree with you. I'm I'm not sure if it'll be like an up up or down issue. On the other hand, you know, it is a significant, you know, issue if you're going around the country talking about homelessness or talking about poverty and you haven't given much money to organizations whose mission it is to combat poverty, to combat homelessness. Right. You know, that right. that does seem to indicate something. And, you know, 
some candidates, I've seen some responses to questions about this charitable giving that have, you know, frankly, not been too impressive. Uh, one candidate said that, you know, they're so dedicated to public service that that is their, uh, their expression, which, it, you know, he would have been better off, I think, not saying anything at all. Uh, and Emma, can I ask just one thing I think I've heard you talk about a little bit with uh, one of our advisory council members is about this difference between the, the Twitterverse or the Twitterati evaluating what's happening at this moment in the campaign versus the mainstream voting public. How does that play into our moment? The New York Times had a great piece on this recently that looked at research on the politics of heavy social media users on Twitter or Facebook and the general voter base in America. And what they found on the Democratic side is that people on Twitter are largely far to the left of the general Democratic voting population. And I think this matters for a few reasons. The first is that in our cycle of cancellation culture and call-out culture, often candidates can be put on the spot and held account for controversies that are essentially contained to Twitter that wouldn't make much sense to the regular semi-engaged news consumer and voter, and that ultimately might not have that much relevance for their policies or for the outcome of the election. And the second thing is that the news media is notoriously dependent on Twitter for sourcing stories and for coming up with what they establish, we establish to be the sort of consensus positions. And so what I think that results in is sometimes that the questions that journalists are asking or the stories that they're picking up on aren't actually the stories that are essentially on the mind of most voters. And I think that can ultimately have damaging effects for the amount of good information that's able to be produced, especially in these early stages of the race. Yeah, I, I think it's a really serious problem. And I think it's a problem for media, as, as Emma mentioned. But I've seen, you know, on, on the inside, uh, the effect that this has, even on campaign staff, there's just so much noise. You lose sight of what various constituencies, what, what is really important to various constituencies. And you, th there's a real sense of mission drift that I think can, can take place uh, sometimes. And then you just lose prioritization of what you should be speaking to. It's a real test. I think uh, candidates that have uh, on the ground presence are going to have an even bigger leg up in this kind of environment. I do think, though, you know, there's going to be, um, it'll be interesting to see if some of the less online candidates, someone like an Amy Klobuchar, is going to be able to uh, cultivate sort of that retail politics and fundraise enough and for long enough to stay in the race where they can actually break through. Or if the donors are as, as, as guided by social media dynamics and conversations as other elites are and sort of the retail politics that is more connected to, to actual voters gets weeded out just because of gatekeepers and because of some of these other dynamics. So it's going to be a real it's going to be a real tension in this race. And I do think we're going to see, you know, some of the major flashpoints are going to be candidates who are really resonating with columnists, you know, at the times or on, you know, slate. Uh, but when they take that message to actual voters and into communities, they're going to be shocked that it's not resonating, you know? So it's, it's going to be a real interesting thing, you know, just as one example, 
in a sort of very social media centric interview, Kamala Harris announced her support for seemingly ending the criminalization of prostitution. Well, it's going to be really interesting when she's in South Carolina going to churches on Sunday and she's asked about that position and it might not fly as well with sort of DC social justice advocates as it does with church-minded folks on the ground. Now, there are going to be dozens and dozens of those kinds of conflicts and it's going to be interesting to see what wins out. I saw Ezra Klein point out this morning that the tone of the announcement speeches uh, amongst the candidates were, has been quite different. And the number of times, for example, that the term fight, did you see this? Mm-hmm. Yes, was used, differed dramatically. You know, for Elizabeth Warren, it was 25, and Kamala Harris was 23, and Christian Gillibrand, it was, it, was, it was 21, Cory Booker was 9, Beto and Bernie were tied at 2, and Buttigieg was 0. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what does that matter? At, at, yeah. You know, and sort of thinking about sort of not just religious language, but also tone. Yeah. You know, there is this stream of thought right now that, you know, the most effective candidates are going to be the ones who identify the best enemies. You know, this is something that thought pieces are now written on, sort of like the way that you tap into voters' emotions is by casting yourself as the hero and just naming the right enemies that have the right amount of resonance. And that's where a lot of this fight language is coming from. The general religious impulse is very different from that. And so even tonally, the, the, the policy can be the same. But you look at someone like Cory Booker, who's rolled out significant anti-poverty legislation as a part of his campaign, but has done so sort of under a rubric of love, uh, politics of love and a, a moral center, as Sarah Pulliam uh, reported, uh, I believe, last week. And you look at Elizabeth Warren, who has been prolific on the policy front and is advocating anti-poverty policy really through an, a more antagonistic way of identifying really enemies that are hurting working people. And, you know, that's just that approach is going to play out differently in different religious communities. Now, I will say what what I know from my work is an approach that does focus on economic fairness, that does appeal to a convicted sense of justice, not only has the ability to tap into a Democratic base voters and motivate voters, but it's actually effective with moderate Catholics and evangelicals, especially in the Midwest. And so, you know, this kind of values infused, whether it's sort of a positive value under love and the common good, or, you know, whether it's there are bad guys who are out there, you know, hurting working families, that's going to be an undercurrent of religious appeals that we're going to see. And so, in other words, you know, the same thing Ezra was pointing out on the general level of this tension between, you know, those who appeal to hope and those who appeal to sort of a fighting and a more war mentality. That's going to happen with slightly different sort of implications on the faith level, too. Can I ask you both whether you were surprised by, for you, Michael, eight years of the Obama administration, you know, and your, your desk there, Emma, your reporting, which we can all find uh, at The Atlantic, um, and obviously encourage listeners to do so. Were you surprised by what you discovered of the religious composition of the country out there as a result of, of your of your work? Did you find, for example, I mean, Pew, I look at the Pew numbers all the time, and, you know, 70.1% of the country today 
still says that it is Christian in some yeah. way. Two percent Jewish. You know, there's definitely a big rise of the nuns. We we see that. But what did you find surprising about the work of reporting on the streets, uh, Emma and Michael? You know, liaising with mainstream Americans in that right that regard. Well, so I can jump in there. I would say that my reporting, which often focuses on the nation as a whole, does obviously show that America is still a religious nation. This idea that America is totally secular and that religion is going the way of the dinosaurs is just not the case. And that can also be combined with the recognition that religion is no longer if it ever was, the organizing principle of all of American life. And what I mean by that is that even though that 70-some percent of Americans identify as Christian, the amount of people who actually attend church on a weekly or regular basis, the amount of people who would say that, the number of people who would say that a religious institution is very important to their life, is a big part of their giving, is something that really helps to set their personal agenda in how they might be, for example, casting a vote or at least evaluating a candidate and a set of values and priorities that he or she may offer, that number, I think, is much, much smaller. And so what we have to ask there is how do we process these demographics, this information that we have about Mm -hmm. America's religiosity in conversation with all of this Sturmandrang about the role of religion in political life. And I think the right way to go about that is to basically look in different communities and try to get a lot of texture, to hear Mm. different people's own rendition of how religion is playing into their life and how it might factor into their political views, how it might not factor into their political views, to look at the internal conflicts within communities over core Mm. issues, and to ultimately bring that back and say, this is part of the American landscape. There's infinite amount of texture and granulosity and different experience. And my job as a reporter, which is a great, great task and a a wonderful job to be able to do, is to capture with as much specificity and nuance all of that difference that we can then bring back to these larger national conversations. I want to affirm what Emma said. In my experience, I'll say I found a lot of surprise among people at very key levels of decision-making even when you just ran through the basics of religious demographics in the country. So there is this sort of filtering out of just uh, the demographic reality of the country. People, just based on their own experience, what is important in their lives may have different perspectives, and that affects how campaigns operate. That affects how the government operates. The way that that plays out is is really significant. I'll often speak to religious groups who aren't in the political space directly, but care and understand that politics is affecting them. And they'll ask me, you know, what what can we do short of, you know, policy advocacy or that kind of thing? And, and I'll tell them religious education, helping other Americans understand what it means to be religious is something that would not have been as necessary 30 years ago, even 20 years ago. But now it's essential. You know, as Emma sort of pointed out, you no longer understand what it means to be religious simply by being in this country as a sort of cultural osmosis. That goes at the elite level. And honestly, it goes to just the average Americans. You you can now go through a professional life in politics You could win campaigns. 
operating in places where religion doesn't really matter that much. You know, Carville working for Clinton in the 80s and 90s, even if he wasn't a uh, devoutly religious person himself, you weren't going to win in Arkansas. You weren't going to win where Clinton had to win without at least understanding religion. And now that's not necessarily the case. So it's a big challenge. Then the other thing that's happening, again, I want to affirm what Emma pointed out. We're just seeing across the board a lot of internal tension within religious traditions. So it's not just what's the difference between evangelicals and Catholics and Muslims and Jews. Each of these communities have very distinct issues playing out. The black church has very significant generational differences that are being played out right now. In evangelicalism, you have a lot of different tensions being played out. One of them is along the lines of of gender and the way different groups of evangelicals are sort of organizing themselves in that way. And so going to the ground, not counting out any voters uh, just because they belong to a group that you would generally categorize as not particularly amenable to your policy is is not going to be a helpful strategy for for the sake of the country and social cohesion and and uh, being a president who wants to represent everybody, but it's also just not going to reflect reality. And is that partly the journalism changes we are witnessing and sort of the country being split apart in that way? You know, the classic idea of politainment and, you know, you're, you're, sort, of, you're sort of getting what you want to get siphoned off to you by the big tech companies, so you're not reading the same stuff and therefore disconnected from one another? Is that is that the change where people, you know, increasingly don't want their kid to marry someone of the opposite yeah, political okay. party versus what it was, you know, a generation ago? It was more about race or something. I don't know what it was about. You know, yeah, you, sure. you know what, is, what, is, what is underneath that? Yeah, so I think both of those things, but I'd add, and Emma and I have discussed this, there's also just a real crisis of authority in many religious traditions right now. There's a let, you know, the, in the same way that we see a distrust of government, a distrust of media, now many people distrust even their own church. And so, you know, what that, what that means is that these um, individuals are very much approaching religion with a sense that, uh, yeah, there may be leaders that they listen to and that can inform them, but, but really I need to figure this out myself. I can have all these various inputs, but at the end of the day, I have to be the decider of what is real or not, what is true or not. And that's led to, um, you know, even in traditionally hierarchical organized religious traditions, not to mention like, you know, low church Protestants, that leads to a great amount of, of difference, which again means that, you know, when we're talking about political campaigns, uh, it means that, yes, the grass tops and leaders are important. There are still leaders that have influence and that can legitimize you as a candidate. But it also means that you need to find ways of directly reaching these voters because you may find voters who are looking for and willing to support you as a candidate, even if you know the leaders of their denomination are not too favorable. Emma, I read your piece on Pittsburgh, and you're all over the country, you know, looking at communities. Do you find stories that generally make you more hopeful or more uh, worried uh, on this front with respect to authority? Huh. You know, I would, I would say mixed. So in general, I think it is the case that 
our political culture and political leaders possibly are much more craven at the national level than they are in local communities around the country. And similarly, I think that one of the powers of religious community is that it helps people who are otherwise different to find a bridge with one another, to be in the same space together, to share a set of values and teachings, to be called by their own faith traditions, to reach across some sort of partisan divide and find commonality with one another. And so in that way, I think religion reporting and religion reporting specifically out in the world across the country can actually be quite hope-inspiring because people are good and they want to be in community with each other and they in general have these ways of of bridging those gaps that we see at the national level. But I also think that along the lines of what Michael was saying before, there are all of these factors that are entrenching people's beliefs about these large-scale identity issues, these nationalized political identities that align across partisan lines. And that nationalization of our culture has really, I think, been sort of a poison in the well of some of that flourishing local Mm. life that can be so hope-inspiring. And I think in general, the mood in the country, and we know this from studies that we've done with the Public Religion Research Institute and the Atlantic, that the mood in the country is is negative. It's unhopeful. People think that there is an enormous amount of division. They think that they uh, cannot find a, a kinship or a sense of similarity with people who are unlike them. You mentioned this before, Josh, but there are astonishing rates now of Democrats and Republicans both who say that they would be horrified if their kid married someone of the opposite political party, especially relative to, say, the 50s and 60s. And this is just, to me, the most striking and in some ways heartbreaking measure of just how deep the partisan divide goes. So I think there could be maybe one in in both category, a little hope and a little despair. But ultimately, I, I think that reporting on this and trying to get below the surface of some of those surface level associations is so important because the goal to me of reporting is to try to create a little windows of understanding. So Mm. I'll keep digging, we'll keep digging, and hopefully that can help at least some people find a sense of understanding of people who they otherwise might not be inclined to be in community with. Yeah. You know, as I travel to, you know, local churches, really what's changed is, um, or part of what's changed is that sort of national culture, media culture, political culture, is now so much more pervasive and can reach more deeply into people's lives to the extent that it's suffocating local imagination for how things could be different. It's changing the way that people interact with one another. That uh, The Stanford study that, that Emma just, just pointed to is you know, one of the most striking examples of this. We know also that um, uh, uh, people are segregated uh, geographically by ideology, so we no longer live with people who think differently than us. The other thing that I run into when I'm talking with pastors is, you know, it used to be that, you know, when you'd get an email from your congregant asking for coffee, the pastor would know that they were going to get grilled on, you know, why does God permit evil in the world? You know, is God really sending people to hell? You know, these these theological concepts. And, and now, when you get asked for coffee as a pastor, as a clergy person, it's political litmus test issues. It's no longer 
you know, questions of, of faith, you know, plainly. It's, you know, is this a church that supports a certain political party? Do you speak on this issue? Um, if not, sometimes they won't attend. If yes, then sometimes they won't attend. And so pastors are just um, uh, uh, th- this sort of detached nationalization and politicization of their ability to shepherd their congregation is really profound. Emma has reported on pastors who have taken stands on certain issues, spoken to certain issues, and have had people, had significant numbers of their congregation leave the church just because the pastor felt convicted to speak on something that they had heard about on cable news and had a different opinion. So it's, it's, um, I find hope in the com- in the local communities that are able to pierce through the sort of uh, suffocating, potentially suffocating onslaught that they're receiving that tells them that that the way things are playing out at the national level is normal or even moral. And I, I do find many examples of that, but the the the, the sort of the, the tide is working against them. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know that when it comes to, you know, national perspective on Congress, if you're going to say what the Congress should be, uh, it, right, just prove right, it's, when yeah. it's, in the, it's in the single digits, right? Yeah. But when it's your congressman, you know, it's it's in the 90s something, you know, yeah. and and one wonders if that can't be uh, increasingly common when it comes to to religion. It's hard though when you don't have a local journalist. That's uh, right, and that's a big yeah, trend, yeah, yeah. right? And Absolutely, sure picking up on that, you know, closely. But that mm-hmm. that decline as we're more and more awed by the national uh, sort of glitter. And, and less uh, anchored with what's actually happening in the local community. You don't have as much accountability. You don't have as much sort of knowledge of local events, civil society and the like. That's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think about that all the time because local journalists are the ones who are out there hitting the pavement every single day in their local communities and keeping track of the things that are sometimes tedious and dismissed but actually are the building blocks of civic life. You know, the school board decision, the zoning decision, the water sewage system treatment decision, all of this stuff really matters for how people are being represented in government. And I would say that the decline in local news is not necessarily the result of the nationalization of politics, although certainly you could say that was part of what drove some of the consolidation around local and regional newspapers and television stations and radio stations. But I do think it's cyclical, meaning that the more that our country looks to the national level in order to determine what our culture and politics should be, the less there is that audience and appetite for the local news, the less there's that audience and appetite, the less it's possible for that journalism to be sustained, the less information people have, the more that they look to that national level to be the arbiters of our our culture and politics. Well, that seems like a great place maybe to wrap up on. I look forward to, we'll make sure that we've got links to, to each of you guys. Follow them both on Twitter. And Michael Ware, despite being a brand new father, is also compiling a weekly newsletter that's right. I highly recommend uh, getting. How we get that, Michael? Yeah, right. so uh, you can go to reclaiminghope.substack.com to subscribe. And it's something my wife and I put together. My wife is sort of the um, works on international issues, and we put together a weekly newsletter that'll really help you navigate 2020, provides a weekly news and analysis on both what's happening in the faith world and also what's happening in politics. And so we, we really hope it'll be a resource for, for folks, especially as we head towards uh, head to, uh, deeper into this presidential election cycle. Wonderful. Well, it makes sense that you guys do that together because it's so good. How could one person do it by himself? <laughs> Thank you, Emma Green. Thank you, Michael Thank- Ware. 
Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to subscribe, and we'd appreciate if you'd rate and review the show, which helps get the word out. Thanks for listening.